0: This is Phantom Power, Episode One.
1: Dead
2: air. Yeah, silence. It's like a it's like a vacuum, uh-huh. and it's sunny.
3: It's a little bit like a walkie-talkie where you've got to press a button to speak and let it go to hear.
0: signal drops out
1: hello and thanks for joining us on phantom power a podcast about sound in the arts and humanities over the next six or seven episodes this season we'll be investigating how artists and scholars are thinking about sound writing about sound and using sound to make things my name is Mac Haygood I'm a media scholar a writer and a musician
0: I'm Chris Cheek. I'm a poet, sometimes a sound poet, sometimes an unsound poet. I've also done a lot of work with music over the years. And I'm going to be learning a lot as we make this series in terms of thinking about listening and talking together. Sounds about sound.
1: And I don't know, I don't know if this is ironic or fitting, but we're starting off this first episode talking about silence. So... Today, we sort of have a three-parter. We're, we're thinking about the roles of silence uh, in reading and writing. And we're going to think about the dead air in the eye of a hurricane, this kind of silence that presages something terrible. And um, then we're going to be thinking about silence as a disruption, a, you know, an interruption of your uh, regularly scheduled broadcast, or what they call dead air. <laughs> so, Chris, a long, long time ago, I was a 19-year-old college student in New Orleans, Louisiana, at Loyola University, and I just took this, you know, intro English class with this professor named John Biganet, and he just made a huge impression on me. He really started making me think in different ways, and then I went on with my life, and It turned out that this gentleman, John Biganet, turned into a well-known fiction writer, poet, playwright. Um, He has written uh, a collection of short stories called The Torturer's Apprentice, which is just this sort of spellbinding collection that is a little bit Chekhov, a little bit Kafka, a little bit Borges. Um, He's won the O. Henry Award for short fiction. Uh, He's won a Harper's Magazine Writing Award He wrote this trilogy of plays about Katrina and the flooding of New Orleans. And now he's written a book on silence uh, for this series of short books that have titles like Bread or uh, Golf Ball. (laughs) So just kind of thinking deeply about these quotidian objects in our everyday lives. And John chose Silence. I read it. It's a terrific short book. I highly recommend it. And so the last time I was down in New Orleans, I went to his office and, um, and we had a terrific conversation.
3: We may conjecture that somewhere in the cosmos, beyond the border of all human trace, a zone of silence awaits. Always receding, of course, before the advance of future explorers, a great sea of stillness unperturbed by the animate, an utterly quiet virgin territory, but our imagination misleads us if we conceive of silence as a destination at which we might arrive. Similarly, in a less poetic vein, if we assume that silence is merely the absence of sound waves, or more precisely, the absence of a medium capable of transmitting sound waves, though we are correct, we miss a larger point. Silence is a measure of human limitation. I began to be involved in this book um, when I was approached um, by Ian Bogost and Chris Sheberg, who are the co-editors of the Object Lessons series for Bloomsbury. Uh, They gave me my choice of subjects, and I chose Silence. It didn't occur to me at the time that was an unusual choice uh, for um, a book um, that is supposed to focus on objects, Um, because as a writer, I spend so much of my day in silence, either reading or writing, that um, it's the most common object in my life, in fact. Uh, It's the farthest corner of my house. Um, the one where I can control the sound, um, which is to say the one in which there is no sound. It's um, it's more of a nest than an office. I'm surrounded by the notes and photographs um, and maps and all the uh, kind of information a writer needs to tell a story. And since I most often am writing fiction, inventing where I go, um, the reality that's grounded in those documents I find very helpful. Um, But for the most part, uh, the one thing that I really need is silence um, and a cup of black coffee to be able to write. Silence Reading is a contradiction in terms, um, as I began to understand the deeper I, I got into my study of silence. Because um, a book is not intended to be a monologue, but a conversation. Uh, we It's a little bit like a walkie-talkie, where you've got to press a button to speak and let it go to hear. We suppress our own consciousness for a moment and read a few paragraphs. And then we stop reading and look up and ask ourselves, do I agree with that? Does that make sense? Uh, Is it accurate? Is it true? Um, And once we've made a judgment about that, we return to that other consciousness, which is manifest in the words of the book, um, and um, offer a sort of hospitality um, to another mind. Um, We uh, internalize it. And then once again, we stop, freeze things and judge it and decide, is this true? Is this a representation that I can embrace? Um, And then we continue reading. So reading for me seems to be a movement back and forth between my mind and somebody else's mind. In fact, I published a story recently, um, and I was asked at the end of an interview about that story, uh, what books would I I, I suggest that Donald Trump should read? And I said, the real question is not what should he read, but why can't he read? And I think the reason he can't read is he is such an uh, extreme narcissist that he can't admit anyone else into his consciousness. He fills himself, and so um, because he can't escape himself, he, he, understandably, he is furious all the time. Uh, the fact that he can't read a book, that he can't read anything, all he can do is watch television and, um, about which he is the subject, um, suggests that someone without the capacity to admit another's consciousness um, is incapable of reading.
0: So I'm uh, listening with great interest to John talking there Mac and I think he's asking at least one very provocative question and the, the first one is can we really think of silence as an object and the terms that he lays out I have to admit I feel I don't have an adequate response I just find it a provocative question yeah
1: i'm I'm probably not an object fan or someone who would really think about silence in terms of being an object myself um especially because I feel like this relationship he's talking about between um, a writer and a reader is really suggestive that silence is a kind of relationship right, right? um and right. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this, this idea that silent reading is this kind of contradiction in terms.
0: Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I think about is that are the voices that we hear inside our heads when we're reading. It might be the voice of the author, um, but it also might be our own voice interpreting mm-hmm. the voice of the author. Yeah, I, I, I agree that, the, that reading is a conversation. Yeah, but
1: I I really like that though, because, you know, again, there's this relationship going on, right? There's this dynamic. So you're in a quiet space where the inner voice can emerge. Right. And then you do this kind of silent reading where, you know, some kind of co production between your own interior voice (laughs) and the voice of the author happens. Um, Or perhaps it's this walkie talkie two way relationship that's happening. Um, although that seems a little bit um, sort of sender receiver, right? like it really like, does, like there's yeah. just this pure message that travels between the the writer and the reader, which maybe i, I I'm, I'm a little bit unsure of but but I, I still nevertheless, I just love the idea of this internal dialogue,
0: call and response, yeah,
1: yeah, and there's this there's this psychologist who wrote this book called The Voices Within. Charles Ferniho, I believe, um, and yeah. he makes this entire argument that thought itself is a matter of voice, um, that there's this interior dialogue that's always happening, so that, that thought itself is dialogic, but we sort of have these, these conversations going on inside of ourselves, as well as the
0: conversations we have with people on the outside. Right, yeah. I mean, a poets would, and now here's a little bit of fancy terminology for you, poets would talk about the endophone, which is the voice that stays within the body, mm. and the exophone, the voice that leaves the body.
1: Oh, that's nice. And what is the relation between those two?
0: Well, the endophone is the sound of you thinking... Uh, the, the, the sound of you reading things over in your mind, the sound of you reading a book without speaking out loud mm. and the exophone is when you begin to talk mm. or begin to read out loud.
1: Yeah. I have to say that this really appeals to me because I feel like I'm an interior voice person. <laughs> like, like I, uh, remember teachers telling me that, you know, you should read more quickly by not sounding out the words and, and. I feel like I've never been able to accomplish that. Right, right. But in fact, there's a lot of research that suggests that very few people actually do that, that. There's this interior voice. Speed reading. Right, right. But I was describing this to my wife, and she tells me that she does not hear an interior voice when she reads. Um, and, it, and it also makes me think of, you know, um, a conversation I had with the deaf artist Christine Sun Kim, and mm-hmm. you know, she told me that she thinks in signs and images, uh, right? So, so, so there's there's right. obviously a sort of diversity of yeah. experiences of thought going on. I like that too. Different kinds of silences, absolutely. So maybe we should uh, keep listening.
3: Yeah, I think the um, this entire question of whether one has The calmness um, and the leisure and the relaxation of the self, sufficient to read in a fully engaging way, um, uh, requires the right circumstances. And that if one is under stress because of disease or disaster, um, that reading is going to be slow to recover. right now. The levees are broken and they can't figure out why and they're having a difficult time trying to fix the situation. The damage is staggering. Insurance companies are saying that they could be suffering
1: losses anywhere within the
3: United. What confirmed this for me was my own experience after the levee collapse in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina sideswiped the city. Um, we lost everything like almost everyone else in New Orleans and were uh, homeless for about a year. In the beginning, we were sleeping in a daycare center. I I was writing for the New York Times, and in fact, I became their first guest columnist, um, sending out bulletins, basically, about what was happening in New Orleans from the point of view of someone who knew the city. Here is where it began, for those of us who live near Lake Pontchartrain, my neighborhood since childhood, a neighborhood now abandoned to the bulldozers of the Corps of Engineers. That first month, sitting on a little 12-inch plastic chair in the care center, writing on an 18-inch plastic table, I wrote 15 columns for the Times and also shot two videos and had no trouble writing that or other pieces that I was producing about um, the serious problems that New Orleans faced in the midst of the flooding and its aftermath. <laughs> Eventually, a mandatory evacuation, enforced by U.S. military units, emptied the city for the next month. Half a million New Orleanians have been driven from their homes and were forced to live as evacuees around the country. Over 300,000 have still not returned to the city. Many of those that have returned cannot live in their homes. But, I also found it almost impossible to read seriously. Uh, My wife and I were taken by my sister in Texas uh, just a few days after the flood. We had gone there to evacuate um, to a a film, a comedy, um, just to get our minds off of things. And at the end, I told my wife I felt like I was suffocating in there. There's something wrong with me. She said, me too. I think what happens is that when you go through something traumatic, you're holding on so tightly to the self that you can't admit anybody else into your consciousness. Uh, and therefore, uh, serious reading becomes almost impossible. You can read uh, a newspaper article or instructions or directions, but the kind of intense reading I've done as um, a teacher of literature and as a writer um, seemed beyond my grasp. Um, And it's only little by little I've recovered the ability to read intently, to make room for somebody else um, inside my consciousness. And if I have one lasting injury from the flooding of New Orleans, it's that I've never fully recovered the intensity of my reading that I had before the flood. And in fact, at dinner parties here in New Orleans, uh, when I brought it up in the years after the flood, people were relieved to hear that someone else also was suffering from something that seemed quite widespread. Um, The inability to relax the grip on the self long enough to be able to read or even watch a film for that matter. Silent reading is a contradiction in terms. Reading, for me, seems to be a movement back and forth between my mind and somebody else's mind. Yeah, silence... Silence is... um, Silence itself is something that... um, in its very essence, can't be experienced, since our understanding of it is something that is inaudible. So, sort of like the placeholder zero, uh, it's an extremely useful concept for us, even if we have no experience with it. Um, Imagining um, silence uh, is as close as we'll come to it.
0: The interesting bit uh, there for me was this sense that he needed to make room for somebody else in his consciousness, and that inability to relax the grip on the self long enough to read. Uh, Mm -hmm. was something that he's suffered lasting damage from and that reading has only sort of very gradually, little by little, recovered because he was holding on so tightly to the self, which does feed back directly into his critique of of our great leader, uh, that (laughs) sense of the narcissistic peopling of himself with the clamor of his own selves. Um, holding so tightly to himself that he has no room for anybody else and he has no room to become a reader of other voices.
1: Yeah, it kind of reminds me, now that you mentioned that, of um, Sherry Turkle's argument, Um, the media scholar at MIT, Sherry Turkle, who talks about us spending so much time on our devices and kind of having this a uh, low involvement form of togetherness, right Or we're kind of alone together, but we're never really alone and we're seldom really together. Um, and and so that there's not this space for self-development, this kind of quietude that John was talking about.
0: Right. I, I also really liked his uh, statement that silence is something that cannot be experienced since our experience of it is something that's inaudible, and we're left imagining silence, uh, which I feel uh, does begin to answer some of my initial quibbles with his initial proposition. Yeah, yeah. So while I was listening to John, um, having heard these extracts a little earlier in the summer, I met up with an old friend of mine who is a poet, Rodrigo Toscano, who lives in New Orleans right now, Um, but uh, I I actually know Rodrigo as also being a union worker. He works for the United Union of Steelworkers. That's the largest industrial labor union in the U.S. right now. And he does a lot of liaising with areas of the country that have been hit by major storm damage to recover. So he's been in these command and control center situations for five hurricanes now Um, and i sat him down really with very little notice and asked him rodrigo what does it sound like inside a hurricane and this is what he said is there no sound when it when you're writing them
2: right under the eye that's correct that's correct uh uh, if it's over land it's like a it's like a vacuum Uh and it's sunny uh, above you, right. and and and, but you, you know that um, this is a temporary thing. The sound then becomes of the arms. You you hear it. You hear it at a distance. That, uh, for example, in your living, walking daily life, when you see um, a cloud, say ten miles away from you, it, it would be absurd to say that you can hear that cloud. Right. Not so in a hurricane. You begin to hear the rumble of, of the arms of that hurricane, different pressures of air, you know, hitting other, so it's air on air is what it is at first. And it's a strange sensation because to hear wind not interacting with uh, material objects, um, but with wind itself, that's the first thing that you hear. Right. As the winds start to pick up, um, as the hurricane approaches, you begin to hear, you know, obviously, you know, the rustle of of, of trees, in in a sort of or, or, an orchestration uh-huh. <laughs> of all these things moving all at once, uh, a rumble, uh, a pinging, wind on wind. What
0: kind of rumble is it? Is it is it like a is it like distant thunder?
2: No, it's it's more like a like a huge piece of Velcro being ripped in the like above you because what's happening Base is there's, there's like like yeah there's there's fissures of air com- in, and there's there's gashes of, of pressure systems right. being ripped open right. for these for this pressure of the wind that's got to push so it's gonna it's gonna sometimes slowly billow up and sometimes it's gonna rip through a, a certain pressure system and then ultimately as it is as, as the wind start to pick up you start to hear um you know, the thunder of projectiles right. hitting solid surfaces, iron on brick, brick on wood, uh, uh, you know, a tree trunk on car, you know, what's the sound of an automobile hitting a, a bridge? Right. Uh, and, things, and that's when things get really, really frightening. I remember one time, um, though the winds weren't the worst, there was a, an incident where uh, a sort of a, a canister, a, contain, a container of some sort from some vacant lot uh, you know, was picked up uh, in, in the air and flung against the, what well, the the concrete walls of the command right. center. Set that that thud, uh, <laughs> um, I could feel it inside my body. Right. Um, right. You might liken it to being in a tank and being hit by a shell. You know, you hear the sound of walkie-talkies. Right. You hear the sound of hasty hasty reports, right. sirens. Um, uh, people checking in with each other, um, you know, warnings, bells, uh, you know, a lot of ex- expletives, or and and a phrase that's often heard is like, "This is this is getting bad," you know, and then and then you hear it, you know, with more intensity. This is getting really, really, really bad. <laughs> but you cannot concentrate on. I can assure you that nobody, uh, that that I know that's experiencing this can can do anything other than listen to the storm hitting, you cannot listen to your music, I don't care, you cannot listen to the TV, you can't, you're completely locked in, and that's what's very dominating about that experience, it's like being dominated by by visuals and 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 sound. sound. And then what happens is the storm eventually passes and there's the sound of water you know, clapping against you know, waves, little wavelets clapping right. against buildings, right. bubbling, uh, things floating, uh, definitely boots right. splashing in the water, right. or people walking by, um, boats.
0: So the, the sound of, a, of an area of a city that's flooded out. If you're going through it on a boat, it must be totally alien from the sound of that city, if you were. Walking oh,
2: absolutely. Through. Well, for one, for one, the traffic has stopped, completely stopped. Right. So there's no there is no car traffic. and once once the car traffic stops in a city, you'd be surprised how far you can hear. You can hear somebody. A mile, practically, like uh, you know, saying something, or mm-hmm. across the street, and you can just—you don't have to shout. You can just say something. Definitely, the absence of car noise is is an eerie, eerie sound.
0: And the whole resonance space, the whole sonic space of that uh, part of the city—you know, it's, it's something's a wrong. No,
2: the sound itself lets you know that something is wrong with their right, city. Right. Absolutely, it's the sound that lets you know. You open the door and you, you come out, and it's um, something happened here. It's not just the visual. Absolutely, it's not just the, the you know the knee high or the waist high water. Um, in many cases, uh, the the electric lines you know right. have a sort of buzzing sound that you you get used to as, as as a sort of white noise. Those aren't working anymore, and then you know we we fought the water for so long with you know levees and all sorts of things to reclaim land from the swamp and erosion and you see the water returning and asserting itself and having its way with you know our our, our built landscape yeah, that's correct you know?
0: thank you yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, he, uh, Rodrigo has quite the ear for detail, um, <laughs> quite a good auditory memory. Um, and yet, you know, as someone from New Orleans, uh, I've been through some hurricanes myself and, um, mm-hmm. those things really imprint themselves on you. Those sounds that he mentions that they, they, they form an impression,
0: you know? Yeah. That's an embodied memory. Yeah. One of the things, uh, I, I almost wonder if John and Rodrigo might not have met uh, yeah. <laughs> and know each other. They would have some things to talk about, I think. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Especially because both of them are talking about this relationship between interiority and exteriority, right? right? You can't think about information in a moment where this hurricane is bearing down on you. Right. right. You can't right. listen to the radio or, or think right. logically about anything. Your body is being affected by sound and you're listening at this kind of primal
0: level. Yeah, in some ways that does re- refer back to John's idea of uh, having no space for other thoughts and other voices. yeah. And there's that beautiful thing that he says there in the sense that, you know, we are so used to hearing cars in our environment that when you remove all of those ordinary hums, uh, suddenly the distance that you can hear and the detail that you can hear at distance is is radically transformed. Yeah, and I have had that experience
1: several times in New Orleans, the post-storm power outage silence. It's really something to get to hear... A large city in that kind of quiet state, right another kind of silence, yeah, yeah, another kind of silence. so for our last piece, this is something that we're we're playing around with short audio essays by one of us on a particular topic, um, and this time it's by Chris, so we'll let him take it away
0: I have been thinking about the term dead air and the contradictions it might embody. Does dead air mean air without any life in it, or the air the dead breathe? Air without that which makes it air, James Joyce's black snowflake that swirls through the air looking for the meaning of life. Dead air is more than an uncomfortable period of awkward silence which would sound like this. Landlines are losing their pride of place in many a house, but almost every weekend I speak with my 91-year-old mum 3,000 miles away, her on her corded phone and myself all gone cordless. She most likes to write letters, but the post offices close to where she lives have closed and an air letter now involves a bus journey. She calls herself part of the lost generation that will never absorb computers into their daily fabric. Very often, when we're in the throes and flows of conversation on a Sunday morning, the line we're talking on will suddenly go dead, seemingly for no reason. The signal drops out. Transmission cuts into a void. Sometimes, I've imagined her having fallen or having stretched the cord too far it had pulled out of the wall socket, or perhaps simply put the phone down, having lost interest in and patience with her errant son, and so on. At other times, I think the break might have been caused by me roaming the house so much that the stable signal came undone or some other such nonsense. I imagine We are being listened to by agents in footage edited from a 1970s conspiracy theory. The line-tapping surveillance squad run rampant. That sounds like this. There's a difference then, I hope you can hear, between the intentional broadcast of silence and the unintention of dead air. Dead air freaks broadcasters out. It might occur as a result of operator negligence and it might also be a technical fault, introducing an unmodulated carrier wave into circulation. For a few seconds just after 4.30 p.m. Pacific Time, During Super Bowl 2018, viewers were treated to about 30 seconds of absolutely nothing during an ad break by an NBC network citing equipment failure. But growing up in a post-Second World War United Kingdom, Remembrance Day was marked by participating in a two-minute radio silence broadcast by the BBC to meditate on the guns no longer firing and the arrival of peace. Across the UK, people dropped out of their everyday thoughts and actions to fall still, observing, listening to silence, minimizing their outward movements, paying respect to the millions who lost their lives in both world wars. Undoubtedly creepy in respect of dead air, during an unnerving search on the term for this tiny think piece brought up marketing materials for the dead air silencer, an oft-used gun modification, so that not merely did the guns fall silent, but now that very silence can be deadly too. Chris Cheek,
1: and that's Phantom Power for this week. Big thanks to John Biganay and Rodrigo Toscano. You can get more information about Phantom Power and find links to some of the things we discussed at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you rated us on Apple Podcasts. Tell us what you thought about this show on Facebook, Just search for SoundPod or give us a shout on Twitter at PhantomPod. Today's show was written, edited, and sound designed by Chris Cheek and me, Mac Haygood, with music by me and Graham Gibson. Phantom Power is made possible through a generous grant from the Miami University Humanities Center and the National Endowment for the Humanities.